<laughs> Welcome to Bloom Living. I am your host, Thomas DeShooter, former rock musician turned financial strategist, sharing amazing ideas from amazing people looking to up the game of life whenever we can. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Thomas DeShooter. And on today's Bloom Living podcast, we have Cedric Dahl of 1000X. Uh, he is the founder. He is an avid cryptocurrency investor. He is considered around the globe as an absolute expert. And I'll uh, dive into his uh, bio in just a little bit. And a huge shout out, of course, to all of our listeners out there across uh, North America, across Europe, across Africa and uh, Central and South America. I'm just blown away at the cities that I see on our list of people that are tuning into the show. And I'm, I'm just grateful to have you here. And uh, really, I'm, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know what to say other than thank you so much for being a part of our show and uh, for giving us your time uh, for what we think uh, adds some value in the world. And speaking of adding value in the world and valuing things, and how about valuing ourselves? There is, uh, I have an analogy this morning that I, I got while I was walking my dog. And I was thinking about uh, Bitcoin. Now, I'm not an expert in Bitcoin. I don't know everything there is to know about it. I don't know how it's created exactly. I have an idea and I'll stay, uh, I decided I'd stay somewhat ignorant to all of it so that I could have Cedric fill me in on all of it. So my my limited understanding of Bitcoin is, in fact, that it is mined through computer systems, uh, through servers, doing mathematical equations and solving, solving problems, if you will, or math equations and coming up for a Bitcoin. And there's these warehouses throughout the world that have thousands of servers in them that are computing at a constant, constant 24-7. And figuring out these things and in exchange for that the the folks that operate these warehouses they produce bitcoin and that is their return on investment and so of course i'm curious like what does it actually cost to produce an, a bitcoin but i was thinking about this on the human on the human level and on the on the self level and self investment and i know this is a stretch but here's my analogy i was thinking about in terms of you know these computers they they go within, they do all this mathematical equation within, and at the end of it, they produce a Bitcoin and it has a value uh, outside in the, in the world at this point, a financial value, and that's their return. And I was thinking like, well, you know, when do we generate the best return for ourselves? And I was thinking, well, it's when we go within and we do the work necessary to build ourselves to be the best version of ourselves, whether that's, uh, getting really good at something, uh, studying hard at something, practicing something endlessly. It all comes from our ability to really focus on what we want and drive our internal uh, desire to have the positive outcome or to have the zone of genius or to have the education required to be really good at something that we can then go into the world and get a return on investment. And so, you know, one of my five money principles has is actually, you are your most valuable asset. Now, I know that seems like a bit of a stretch, and it might be. However, for me, I really see the correlation between that setup of these computers going in and doing these math equations, 
focusing on that. They're just constantly doing that 24-7. And then from that comes a return on investment in the form of a Bitcoin or any of the other cryptocurrencies because I assume they're all made the same way. I'm not sure about that. Uh, and Cedric will be able to answer that for us. And then ourselves, how much time are we willing to spend on building ourselves into the best version of ourselves so we can go out into the world and really go after something? And I think Cedric's a great example of that. I've never met Cedric before. I'm certainly going to uh, get to know him here on the show. He is somebody that has focused on an area of interest to him, that being cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc., and it's turned into him having a viable business, him having a return on investment, and him being sought out in the world to offer his expertise in the area of cryptocurrencies. And I got to say, I'm excited to talk to him because, again, it's not my area of expertise. I know enough. I like the saying, I know enough to get myself in trouble with it. That's about as much as I know. And so without further ado, Founder of the 1000X Group, Cedric Dahl, CEO of Google Ventures-backed regulated Bitcoin exchange, managed industrial mining operations, founder of three profitable hedge funds, all outperforming Bitcoin, Bitcoin marketing making with professional Wall Street algo trader, global advising to governments, think tanks, family offices, venture capital, securities firms, etc. Vladimir Putin's right-hand man in the United States. He spent an entire day with Cedric and his team in order to get smarter about blockchain. 1000X personal investing got into Bitcoin at $3, Ethereum presale at $0.35. Cents. He has 10 years of experience in the crypto industry. All right. Welcome to the show, Cedric Dahl. It's great to have you on the Bloom Living Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And you were just saying you were down in Florida visiting your parents and all the chaos in the world. And, uh, you know, I'm on the other side of the continent out, out here on, in, uh, on Vancouver Island. What is the vibe like currently with regards to, you know, obviously the virus that's, that's taking over the world right now in both the media and in people's minds and the markets crashing everywhere because you're, you know, in the cryptocurrency world. And so yeah. just what, what are you experiencing where you are? I think that my parents being senior citizens are thankfully in the short, short term tuned out of all the chaos. But unfortunately, I think that elderly people will be asymmetrically influenced in a bad way by everything, whether it's the coronavirus, which unfortunately affects older people more severely, as well as any cascading effects on the economy, because you know a lot of old people older people are on fixed incomes that they depend on yield investments a lot of which you know exist in corporate bonds specifically corporate debt which is supported by many pension funds and so you know in the short term medium term and long term it's probably not great for older people what's happening right now i've got some thoughts um i don't want to be too much of an alarmist but you know things aren't looking great uh you've got a bunch of different bad things that are all happening at the same time. So I don't know if you've been tracking this trade war that basically no one's talking about anymore, but this trade war that started when Trump was elected um, and it was designed to create us jobs, which, you know, I, I understand that a lot of people in his position would have done something similar, but unfortunately that 
decision is really coming to a head today. So I don't know if you've been tracking some of these tech companies that depend on Chinese manufacturing, like Boosted Boards, for example, the most popular uh, electric skateboard company by far, one of the originators in the space, shut down. And it shut down because of the impact of the trade war. It increased its, um, you know, it reduced its profits pretty significantly, which led to a huge amount of layoffs and then eventually a shutdown of the company. And so the trade war that was started almost four years ago is really like, it's really being felt right now in the economy in a really big way where uh, an underappreciated number of US businesses are shutting down now because of this trade war. So additionally, so that's one of many bad things that's all happening at the same time. Additionally, uh, the world's manufacturing, it's like the whole world has a 3D printer that was China, right? Like everybody made their stuff in China. And unfortunately, the coronavirus, which, you know, despite all the hype, it's real and it's not good and it does kill some people and it does you know, scare a lot of governments, it's shut down trade in China. So the world's 3D printer has been turned off. Now, what this means is that all of the businesses that depend on China are going to be hurt. What that means is that their bottom line is affected. And what that means is that a lot of people are going to get laid off or fired. And what that means is that globally speaking, economies are not going to be doing all that well. Now, this is the second bad thing, but it gets even worse. So Russia is in this weird oil price war with the rest of OPEC, the oil producing countries, and they're basically undercutting each other. Now, if you don't know, the United States has like one of the largest reserves of oil um, after Venezuela and a couple other folks. And when the United States prices oil, it has a huge impact on people's retirement funds because a lot of these retirement funds, they're looking for yield and so they have you know, corporate debt and investments in things that are related to US oil investments. And so, you know, the price of US oil is like 45 plus dollars. The cost of, you know, OPEC and Russia oil is like 20 something dollars. Do the math, right? The prices have got to come down. And when it does, it has these really big effects both immediately on the investments that primarily older people have made. And then there are cascading effects um, on the whole broader economy. And so, Again, I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but it's not looking great for any financial situation anywhere, unless you're like, you know, Zoom, which is what we're using to record this meeting on. Uh, <laughs> search, searches for Zoom, for example, have gone up higher than when they had their IPO. So Zoom is crushing it. You know, remote work is crushing it, but everybody else is hurting. And really, like, the, the victim in all this are old people. But the thing that's so interesting about that is that Old people will feel the biggest pressure, and old people are the largest segment of people who vote. So it's an election year in the United States, and I would bet you a Bitcoin that one of the largest topics of conversation is going to be how you make old people okay in a world where you've got you know this virus that kills them asymmetrically, and you know economic pressure that affects them asymmetrically. And so this is going to be a really weird year for voting in the United States. And we haven't even talked about crypto yet, which is a whole other 
you know, bag of worms. So yeah, is that, are you like thinking about this in the same way as me? Like, what are your thoughts on this situation? Yeah. Thank you, Cedric. And uh, it's like, maybe we're going to be here for eight hours. I'm not sure. Like this could be the longest show in Bloom living podcast history. Uh, Here's what, here's what I'm, I'm thinking about is absolutely. uh, And, and what you didn't even touch on in, in the conversation around elderly and income is that if they're forced to sell investments to to get extra capital, they're selling at the worst possible time because the market is crashing. And and then that just takes away from their ability to grow that money when the market does come back because they have less still in the market. So it absolutely is, uh, I, I love the three points you made. I wasn't I wasn't thinking uh, so much about oil in the context of yield, but that is a really good point because, you know, I'm up here in Canada where we have oil sand companies and a lot of them are trusts and they spit out, you know, Vermilion Trust I'm thinking about, for example, they, they, right now the current yield on Vermilion Trust is about 21%. There's no way because the, the stock has just fallen, right? It's just basically been a falling knife. And so there's no way they can keep that yield where it is because oil prices have come down. So they're going to have to cut their yield, which then for all of those, all of those retirees that have investments that are relying on this are going to be affected by that. And, and, I, and I'll, I'll touch on what, what else I'm thinking about is that, you know, we've had this great run in the market and you never know what's going to trigger the cascading of, of panic and selling and fear and a recession. And, you know, there's always the black swan event is what are you thinking about? And here we go. Like, is, is this the event? The coronavirus actually just tipped the scale from what I had already been advising clients, you know, even a year ago, I was saying, don't put new money in the market, sit on some cash. I have a portfolio manager that I work with for, for our clients. He's been in cash for almost two years. He's been accumulating cash, fearful that we were over over leveraged in, in the stock market itself. And now we're back to 2017 prices. Like on the Dow, I was looking at the numbers yesterday. We're almost back to you know some highs that it hit in 2017. So uh, without even touching on the Bitcoin yet and how, that, how somebody might use that, I, I totally see where you're coming from. And we don't know how deep this is going to go or how quickly, to your point, the governments, especially in the US, I mean, that's a huge leadership in the world. How, is, how are they going to come about this and win votes back from the largest voting population? Yeah, well, you know, before we even touch on crypto, I, I just want to call out that crypto is probably not going to do well in the short term. Um, I suspect there will be a lot of stimulus, aka money printing, which is, you know, when you think about governments, like the question is, what can governments do, practically speaking? Like what levers can they pull? There aren't many. There are actually very few. And so it's pretty predictable what their reactions are going to be. Um, you know, the, the biggest lever that governments around the world have been pulling is the money printing lever. And it is extremely likely that governments will try to ease the pain, not even fix the situation, just ease the pain by printing money. And this will probably work in the short term. The problem is, what does this mean for the longer term? You know, I, I have to wonder if this money printing is going to catch up with us eventually. 
you know, in my mind, there's got to be some amount of money printing that a government does that just gets people to lose faith in the currency. I mean, at what point is it funny money? Now, you know, it's going to sound really weird, but we might be seeing the very beginnings of a loss of confidence in central banks. Um, you could say historically, every single currency that has ever existed has failed. You know, some people would say, oh, but the US dollar hasn't failed. I don't know. The moment we switched off the gold standard in the US, the, the buying power of the US dollar has fallen by more than 90%. Just let that sink in for a second. So what's different now is that we may have many government currencies failing all at once, all created by this money printing mania, which I think we're, is about to happen. So, you know, just to touch on crypto for a second, crypto in the short term is very unlikely to be a safe haven asset. Because if you think about it, who is it that is primarily invested in crypto? Well, let's look at the three major markets inside of crypto. You've got retail investors. These are everyday people. You've got professional investors. These are people who manage hedge funds, prop shops, single and multifamily offices. These are people who invest on behalf of wealthy individuals right? So, and then the final market is governments. So when you think about it, right, governments are the biggest market with the fewest number of decision makers, but they're probably, probably, I'm guessing, not the majority of what's propping up crypto at the moment. Family offices, larger number of people, smaller checks than governments, but they are a larger per person check than individuals, but probably not larger in aggregate right now. The largest holder of crypto is probably retail. And the unfortunate truth about retail is that in a recession or depression, would you rather have savings or eat? Well, I, everybody would rather eat. And so unless retail views something as a safe haven asset, it is extremely unlikely to do well in the short term in a recession or depression. Now, you know, you, you look at all the bad stuff happening all at once. If one of the things doesn't get us, I mean, the combination of things probably will. And so I think that cash in the short term, the next six to 12 months, cash is probably king. Um, now, I don't day trade. I don't make moves based on short term phenomenon. So, you know, me personally, you know, I'm not saying I do own crypto for security reasons. But if I did, I, I would probably not be selling right now. Um, but what I would be doing is I probably wouldn't be expecting the price to go up in the short term in a recession. I think that what you are suggesting, holding on to cash, is by far the best thing to do. I'm advising my parents. This is not financial advice that I'm giving. This is just what I'm telling my parents to do. I'm telling my parents to get out of anything that's looking for yield, all of their investments that are like actively deployed, and just hold on to cash. Because the next 6 to 12 months could get extra weird. And I think cash is king in the short term. Wow. I'll tell you what I've been saying. <laughs> what I've been saying is don't panic, right? Like do not get into a state of panic. Uh, and I love your point that the challenge here is if people have not planned for an eventual correction in the market or an eventual recession that could last a year or 18 months, something of that nature, which is a typical sort of recession timeline, 
then you get exactly what you're alluding to is that the, the investments start to disappear and then you get the selling pressure. So to your point on cryptocurrency, if, if, that, if the retail investor is the largest holder of or the, the biggest price mover, then they need their money. They're going to sell and take whatever price they can get at it, right? I mean, it's a market. So when you have more sellers than buyers, what happens? The prices fall, right? That's just, that's just the way it works. So uh, for me, what I have been saying to clients, and, and I'll go back to that, is to have cash. If, if, you've, if you've heeded my advice over the last year, year and a half, there's no reason to sell your current portfolio. What there is, is the opportunity to be ready to buy. You know, and I'll, I, I've quoted Warren Buffett many times on this. When, when people are fearful, I am greedy. And when people are greedy, I am fearful. And I think that is you know, time-tested, true advice today. However, I'll bring a caveat in. And I love what you brought up because I, am, uh, I started looking at the... Uh, bank on yourself methodology using insurance policies about four to five years ago. And I did a lot of research on fiat currencies and the Federal Reserves, et cetera, the, the Bank of International Settlements. Fiat currency, there has, you know, I'll, I'll be bold. There has never been a fiat currency that has survived. They have all failed. And fiat currencies are something that is not backed by a hard asset. So you're absolutely correct. When the U.S. came off of the gold standard, the you know, the show was over. It was, in my opinion, it's a matter of time because politicians, what will they do? They'll print money to get the votes, whatever it takes to win the votes. And if there's no ceiling on how much they can print, then guess what happens? We have an unlimited printing press. And at some point, it's going to come home to roost. Now, the thing that holds up the US dollar is that it's a petrodollar, right? Oil is guaranteed to be backed in U.S. dollars. And that, to my, in my opinion right now, is maintaining the U.S. dollar as a, you know, solid investment, that and the military behind the U.S. dollar. So I don't know if we'll ever see the panic. Another uh, piece of advice I've given clients has been get some hard assets like gold or silver, put it in a safe, get a couple of different currencies, in case there is a currency event that lasts six to nine months, you have the ability to withstand that because you just never know what's going to happen, right? It's just, a, it's a, when I, I started at Ever Jones and they, they used to tell us that you can't predict the future, so you must prepare for it. So it's not about fear mongering. It's really just about saying, hey, is this a possibility or what is the chances of this happening? And if it's, you know, 10 or 15%, then you just do something appropriate for that. If it's like 1% or less, then you don't really, you know, in my opinion, it's not something you really need to worry about. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. You know, the, for the very few people who are in a position to buy as prices slide down, you know, because this is definitely not the average American. The average American is not doing very well. The average American has extremely small amounts of savings. You know, in a survey, I believe that was conducted by, um, Oh, I forget which institution it was, but it was one of the institutions that measures uh, basically the wealth of Americans in aggregate. Uh, the average American in a survey could not afford to pay a $400 medical bill. They would have to put on their credit cards. So that, that starts to give you a sense of how small the amount of the average American savings are. But if you're one of the very lucky few who actually can afford to buy, I mean, I'd probably be dollar cost averaging into hard assets um, throughout the next six months. But again, cash is king. So nothing will, in my opinion, will replace cash in the short term 
if we're in a recessionary depressionary environment and it looks it looks real weird it's not looking great now the question about hard assets or safe haven assets are you know is there something new or different today that could drive a different sort of hard asset and i think there is and it's really underappreciated so i would like to make an argument for bitcoin even though i just said bitcoin is not something i'd recommend buying in the short term if you're one of the very few people who can afford to be investing during the next six to 18 months, here's what's different. In the 90s, the United States made a decision to legalize encryption. And this, this is a really underappreciated event. I mean, this is a moment that I think we're all gonna look back on and be like, wow, no one had any idea how much treasure was gonna get reallocated because of this. So can, so can I pause you one moment? So when you're talking yeah. about encryption, is this, is this in the same world as, as uh, Apple saying that they encrypt their security so that once, you know, so that, that nobody can break into somebody's phone or, or WhatsApp has encryption on every single uh, text that is sent out on, the, on their thread? Is, that, is it the same vein that we're talking about? Yeah, so that's exactly right. Great question. So in the 90s, the government, the US government wasn't sure if we were going to make this legal or illegal. Now, it's my understanding that there was enough pressure from intelligence agencies to basically say, we need this to be legal so our agents in the field can use it. So encryption was made legal in the 90s. And this changed everything because what this means is you can have secrets using math. Now, you fast forward to 2009. And Bitcoin came out and Bitcoin uses what's called applied cryptography, also known as, you know, the ability to keep secrets with math in a way that didn't need a referee. Now, this this is a really important moment. The reason that so many people that were nerdy got super rich because of Bitcoin is they understood the importance of applied cryptography, keeping secrets with math without a referee. What this meant for the first time ever in the history of humanity is that you had fair money. Bitcoin was the first ever experiment at fair money. Why is this fair money? Because what Bitcoin did, it didn't create a lot of innovations. It created one innovation, which was a clock that no one group owned. Now, when the United States has money that it moves around, they basically have a big spreadsheet and they decide what money got moved when the united states owns the clock on their currency if i send you a dollar at noon it says okay cedric's account shrinks by a dollar your account your account grows by a dollar at noon and this is how they decide who owns what when with bitcoin no one owns the clock no one can reverse the clock the transactions are the transactions and that's it and that is a severely underappreciated new thing so when you think about what's going on in the world right in terms of sanctions right like venezuela's got huge sanctions you could say that the trade war with with china is a sanction from the u.s against china you know there's sanctions from the u.s and russia when you look at sanctioned countries there are a tremendous number of countries that are sanctioned and have resources for example oil venezuela russia the list goes on now these countries need to trade, they just have to. And if the US dollar is the thing 
that they have to trade with, and they're not being allowed to trade with it because the U.S. is putting sanctions on them, they've got to find a way around it. And if the only way that the U.S. dollar monitors these, like enforces these sanctions is by, you know, using their clock to reverse transactions, guess what? These countries are going to use a different currency with a different clock. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The more disadvantaged a country is, like Venezuela is pretty disadvantaged because of sanctions, the larger their interest in having a fair currency, and ideally with a clock where there's no referee, where there's no asymmetric advantage. So we're entering a world where countries with treasure want money that has a clock without a referee. That's Bitcoin. And so in the long term, man, I would say that the situation is lining up in a really weird way that could really asymmetrically benefit Bitcoin, but not in the short term, probably in the medium to long term, in the 18 plus months range. And not all cryptos, but asymmetrically Bitcoin. And I'll tell you why. This is going to sound really weird. I may lose some of your audience here, but the short version is the darknet. What we are seeing is that Bitcoin is the dominant crypto of the darknet. And it's not just, you know, teenagers buying drugs or fake IDs. There are governments buying and selling goods on the darknet. There are nation state actors purchasing and selling technology weapons like malware on the darknet. And these disadvantaged governments, we have every reason to believe that they are proactively hoarding whatever the dominant crypto of the darknet is. And so when you look at those three markets, individuals, you know, professional investors and governments, it looks like governments not only have been using the darknet and asymmetrically, whatever the dominant crypto is of the darknet, which by the way, it's Bitcoin by a huge landslide and only growing in dominance. But as these weird events happen that could devalue things in the short term, as these disadvantaged countries are looking to continue to trade, I wouldn't be surprised if they increasingly move towards and proactively hoard Bitcoin. So if you're one of those rare people who can afford to invest as things get scary, it wouldn't be a terrible idea to consider buying an offensively small amount of Bitcoin. Not advice, just my opinion. Mm. <laughs> I love it. Hey, it's Thomas here. Thanks so much for listening to the Bloom Living Podcast. We'll be right back with our guest after a word from our sponsors. Do you feel uneasy visiting a bank? Do you struggle to sit through a meeting with your financial advisor and leave having not fully understood what they were talking about? Are you blindly trusting that somebody else understands this better than you? Call Thomas the Shooter and the team at Bloom Strategies to create your financial future. Together, you will break down the game of money so that you win. Learn how to take control of your finances and make decisions based on your core values that put you in the driver's seat of your financial life. No more thinking that you don't get it. No more financial statements left unopened. And no more feeling like you are stuck in a world of scarcity. Join the conversation on Facebook at Bloom Strategies or go to bloomstrategies.com today. That's B-L-O-O-M strategies.com. Hey, welcome back to the show. You're listening to the Bloom Living Podcast. And now back to today's guest. So there's a bunch of stuff there that I, I'm feeling compelled to unpack. And so I'm going to ask some questions. So first of all, you know, without going into too much detail, can we give our listeners an idea of what the dark net is? 
So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I can't give a good enough example of it. So I'd love for, for your opinion on the dark net. And I think, you know, one of the things I set off at the top of the show was we don't know how cryptocurrencies are made. I'm treating this like I know nothing about it. So how is a Bitcoin produced? How does somebody actually go about doing that? And then are all other cryptos measured against Bitcoin? So is Bitcoin like the gold standard of cryptocurrencies, much like gold is the standard for our fiat currencies in in the world of, you know, lack of a better term, real money that we're familiar with? Yeah, this, this is a great question. So I'll try to really briefly answer these two questions, which is what is Bitcoin relative to these other things and what is the dark net? Okay, so the dark net was basically created by the US military. So um, I forget if it was the army or the air force, but one of them basically created this tool called Tor, T-O-R. And so what Tor is, it, is, it allows you to go to a website without it having a domain name. It's kind of the short version. So the questions you asked, we could literally talk about for 10 years <laughs> because I've been in this space for 10 years and I am not an expert. There are no experts in crypto because it's so wide. So I'm going to do my best to give you a very consolidated answer, but in doing so, there will be lots of caveats and lots of details that I gloss over. So just fair warning. So the dark net was made possible by this Tor technology. And the short version is you can have websites that are hidden, right? So these websites can be used for buying and selling goods, services, information that may not be legal in some or all countries. Now you can imagine why intelligence agencies might want this. Um, the, the short version is they exist, they are used, there is an enormous black market on the internet that uses this technology that was made possible by the US government. Now, it gets weird. It gets really weird because Tor or the Darknet is used by basically all governments. How do we know this? There's a fantastic report put up out by this amazing service called Dark Owl. Just like Google downloads the internet, Dark Owl downloads the Darknet and makes it searchable. So Dark Owl has evidence that almost every country is using this. Um, I'll, I'll share a link with you later uh, to a report that they put out recently. But the Darknet, it's a place where a lot of questionably legal gray and black market activity takes place. Now, on the Darknet, there are only five cryptos that are used to make commerce. Um, and the thing that's really weird about this is there are zero non-crypto currencies on the Darknet. There's no prepaid credit cards. There's no fiat currencies of any kind. There, there's no gift cards. There, there's nothing but crypto, and there's only five cryptos. One of them is extremely dominant and growing its dominance, and it's not what you would expect. It's Bitcoin. Bitcoin's not private. so. Uh, in uh, alongside Bitcoin's dominance, you have to realize that there is a privacy tool called CoinJoin that makes Bitcoin private. And this is this is what we think is enabling this to happen. Now, when you look at the darknet, well, I guess let's take a second back. Like crypto, what is crypto? So, crypto is short for crypt, like applied cryptography. So, what is applied cryptography? It's secrets using math. 
And what Bitcoin did is it allowed you to have a secret using math where you could have basically a secret amount of money using math that you could then send to somebody else that was pseudonymous, not anonymous, meaning your address, right? You could see, like anybody can see how much is in an address that you control, but they don't know that you control that address, but they can see what that address does. Now, with CoinJoin, this technology that makes the Bitcoin possible to be the dominant crypto on the darknet, no one can see what's going on with that address anymore. That address can suddenly effectively become like truly private, which is weird and new. Now, what this means is that, well, let me, let me back up a second. What is the purpose of crypto? Like with, with any technology, why does it go up in value? Well, it has to do two things. One, it has to solve a hair on fire problem that is valuable. And two, it has to capture value. These two things must happen for a technology to go up in value. So what is the superpower that Bitcoin or really any crypto has? Well, there's only one. There's only one reason to use crypto ever. And that is censorship resistance. Basically, this stuff is unstoppable, cannot be stopped. And so where is the one place where you need crypto? Just the darknet. That's it. That's the, the only place where you would need crypto. In every other place, you are better served using a normal piece of technology. Uh, Bitcoin is difficult to use. It's slow. You're way better off using normal money or even a spreadsheet instead of crypto. But, you know, if somebody controls the spreadsheet, then uh, that spreadsheet can be changed by the men with guns. If somebody controls currency, that currency can be reversed or moved around by the men with guns. And so the only reason to use crypto is in censorship resistant places. And so this is why sanctioned countries are very likely the earliest adopters of crypto, the, the earliest adopters that matter anyway, because they have a hair on fire problem, which is sanctions, and they need to trade with other people. And you know, if the US dollar, if they're not allowed to use it, they're gonna find something else, and it looks like they are using other things. One of those things is crypto, and it seems to asymmetrically, like by a huge landslide, be Bitcoin. And so the question then is, okay, if I'm looking to put my money into something that is getting like actual, like if I'm looking to put my money into something, how do I think about future value? Well, in technology investing, you know, I've been studying technology investing for 10 years because I had to, to raise money from Google Ventures, Y Combinator, et cetera, to build one of the early Bitcoin exchanges. What you learn is that like, usually there's what's called a long tail distribution where the first place is first place by a huge landslide and second place is a distant second, third place is a distant third, et cetera. So we look for leading indicators of what might be the head of the long tail of winners in crypto. And generally you look for adoption. That is the, the leading indicator, the growth rate of adoption in an inelastic market. And so the dark market is an inelastic market. No matter how good or bad the economy is, the darknet doesn't get hurt. If the, if the regular economy crashes, the dark, the, the black market generally does as well or better than it normally does. And when the economy is good, generally the black market is still doing great. And so it looks like Bitcoin has really won decisively the, the darknet. That's the part of the black market that is on the internet. And when you look at those three markets, the most valuable market of all seems to be using Bitcoin. And I know that was a very long question to your, a very long answer to your question, but I, I hope it starts to give you some insights into 
why Bitcoin versus the rest of crypto and how we kind of like look at this, like the lens that we look at it through uh, technology investing and, you know, um, long-term value capture. Great. Yeah, that, no, that is, that's helpful. And thank you. Because one of the, uh, you know, in my limited understanding of crypto and Bitcoin, one of the, you know, one of the drawbacks I saw to it was like, it's unusable in, like, I would never sell my house for Bitcoin. Cause I don't, you know, tomorrow the price could fall 50%. Like there's no stability in my view, like there is right. an understanding of the dollar, right? Like, and so it's hard for me. It, it was hard for me to actually express to others, where is the value? And so you did a great job of us understanding the value. So if I, if I understand that, then if there's no black market, there's almost no need for, for Bitcoin. Right. Really? Now, here's the funny thing. Yeah, you're totally right. Now, here's the hilarious thing, which is the black market is a consequence of laws, meaning the black market did not exist until the first law existed. And then from that moment onward, the black market existed. Now, here's a really weird thing about laws is they only grow. Laws don't shrink. If you look at any country that creates laws, they don't come with expiration dates. And so the, the black market is only growing because the number of laws is only growing unidirectionally. Right. So it's the workaround, right? Let's, we, need to, we need to find a way to trade underneath the fence, not over top of the fence, right? How can we slide this, this penny underneath the fence that nobody knows it actually happened, which is, which is what's going on? It's kind of it's crazy. How is Bitcoin created? Because I have this idea that it's like a bunch of servers in a warehouse that are solving math problems internally, and then they spit out a Bitcoin, and that person now has a Bitcoin. And you know, I try to think, like, how is that cost effective? How much does Bitcoin have to be worth in order for me to get any value out of doing that? Great question. So again, I'm going to give you a simplified answer. I'm going to gloss over some things but this will give you a high level understanding. It all comes back to that clock, the clock that no one controls. That is the thing that you gotta remember here, is that it's all about the clock because when money moves is really important, right? So if I have a dollar and I send it to you, but then I also try to send that same dollar to someone else, we need a clock to figure out when my balance was updated, right? So that I can't spend $1 multiple times. So, what Bitcoin does is it gets a bunch of computers together and it says, hey, our network, our clock, right, is secured by all these computers bringing all of this horsepower, this computer horsepower together to keep the clock updated. And as long as we have more horsepower than anybody else who's trying to come in and attack the network, our clock will be accurate. It's all about the clock. So the way it works is, it's kind of like a, uh, a lottery. Now, this isn't, this isn't a perfect explanation, but it, it'll give you the right sense of how it works. So every 10 minutes, whoever brings the majority of the computers to the lottery gets the majority of the lottery tickets. So let's say that you bring 10% of the computer power, right? And I bring twice as much. I bring 20% of the computer power. What ends up happening is I get twice as many lottery tickets as you. Now, you might still win the lottery, but I've got twice as high a chance. Okay, now, what happens when you win the lottery? Well, you get a basket of Bitcoins. At the very start, that was about 50 Bitcoins. And then every couple of years, the basket of Bitcoins gets cut in half. And eventually, 
there will be no reward. And instead of the, there being a lottery, it's what are called transaction fees. So every time somebody wants to use the network, they basically say, hey, I'm willing to pay more to get my transaction to run faster. So over time, miners get paid, the people bringing computers get paid from transaction fees, not from this lottery. Does that make sense? Yeah. Was that a decent explanation? Yeah. So, so basically what, you, what you're saying is that, there's, is that there's a math problem that needs to be solved. Who can ever get in there and solve it quicker gets rewarded. And, and they just keep stacking up where the transaction is timed, like timestamp. This happened at this time. What I thought about in that was, does this, so does this mean, because here's where, here's where most people don't understand the Bank of International Settlements and how our entire system is run. Our entire system is predicated on debt. Like if there's no debt, there's no money in circulation. And when we go back to 08, 09, how did we get in trouble? Well, you know, investment banks and banks were leveraged at 30 to one, meaning for every dollar of savings that they had in their coffers, they were lending out $30 they didn't have. And so when, you know, when the, when the banks came running to uh, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers to say, hey, we want our money back that, that we've, uh, we've lent you, they didn't have it because they had lent it all out. And so we saw the collapse and then that just created the, cata, the, you know, the uh, domino effect of, of banks failing at that time. Does this mean that crypto cannot be or Bitcoin cannot be manipulated and leveraged out where, you know, I have a crypto and now I'm offering 10 cryptos for my one crypto? Is that is that a safeguard there? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And it is. And it's really hard to wrap your brain around, right? Because this stuff's hard. It's really wide. There's lots of attacks that people are trying. Like there's this thing called a fork, right? Where, you know, like there's a fork in a road. It can go in two different directions. Well, there's lots of people who will copy the Bitcoin code and say, oh, my new Bitcoin's going to be worth more than this one. Give me all, you know, invest in me and I'll, I'll be better. But the reality is that these, these things are all different um, attempts at attacking Bitcoin. And the, the vast majority of things, these things fail very quickly. And in uh, in like um, very they fail rapidly and to a, and they end up losing a large amount of money. So Litecoin, for example, was the first fork of Bitcoin, the first copy of Bitcoin, and there have been many others. And you know they've they've been huge failures. And so a lot of people see that and they get mistaken to think that oh you know I'm not gonna you know put money into Bitcoin. Instead, I'm gonna put money into this other thing. And they end up getting fleeced because they don't understand the stuff. But the stuff is super duper hard to understand. There are, you know, there are no experts in crypto. Um, but the, to, to come back to your question, um, yeah, it's impossible to print more Bitcoin. There will only ever be so many Bitcoin. There will be people who copy the code and try to make their own versions of Bitcoin. But the problem is like, they don't get used by anyone. And that's the only way to capture value is to first like, solve a hair on fire problem, which provides enormous value, and then for that thing to capture some of the value. And so you know, it, really, it's, it's, the question, it's two questions. One is, um, are there any cryptos solving real hair on fire problems in inelastic markets? Yes, very few. Uh, Bitcoin is one of them. And the second question is, is there any way to print more Bitcoin? No, none that we're aware of. Not even these things called forks. Right. And so what is something like, uh, and by the way, thank you for that. And before I carry on, I just want you to know off the top of the show, I said you were an expert. So you have to now like wear the hat of expert. You can't say there's oh, no man. experts. You just have to say, I'm Cedric. I am an expert and, and, and own it. Uh, 
What is Bitcoin Cash then? Because my, you know, my yeah. thinking was Bitcoin Cash was like uh, the, you know, younger brother uh, in the family of Bitcoin. And it sounds to me like it, is it a separate entity or was it actually a fork of Bitcoin and became an offshoot of Bitcoin? I, maybe that's, um, I, I, that confuses me now with what you said. Yeah. So, you know, one of my friends, Roger Ver, who was an early advocate of Bitcoin, ended up becoming really the, the main driver of this Bitcoin Cash thing. And I, I in no way want to disparage Roger Ver or Bitcoin Cash because I, I really like Roger. He's a friend of mine and I really respect what he did for Bitcoin. And I, I think that the way, the, the healthy way to look at all these projects is to call them experiments. That's what all of it is. They're all experiments. We don't know what's going to work. And what Roger has done is he's taken some really good intentions and he's decided to take those intentions and do an experiment, right? And that experiment is Bitcoin Cash. And so what he's saying is, look, if you make this stuff more usable, the chances of adoption are higher, right? Now, is Bitcoin Cash going to work? I don't know. You know, uh, I think if we're going to put on our objective evidence hats, I think there are some cases for and against. Bitcoin Cash, you know, one of the cases for Bitcoin Cash is that it is the only new crypto to appear on the darknet in the two years that I've been tracking it. So for the last two years, there were only four cryptos on the darknet, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Monero, Ethereum, and it was like by a landslide Bitcoin, and it's only growing its dominance on the darknet. But there has been a new entrant into the darknet, which is Bitcoin Cash. Now, um, it's, it's so new that we, we don't know if it's going to like make a real impact on the darknet. Um, now there are some cases against Bitcoin cash, right? So like, for example, uh, if you look at what are called network effects, so let's say that Facebook gets invented and no one's using it besides you. Well, Facebook's not that valuable. Now let's say that all of your friends are on Facebook. It's much more valuable. So the network effect is unfortunately not in the favor of Bitcoin cash just because there's just so so fewer people using it, right? You've got um, like on the dark net, many fewer vendors are accepting it um, on exchanges that has a dramatically smaller amount of volume. So, you know, you can make cases for it and against it. Um, but if you look across the board at adoption, at an ability of something to solve a hair on fire, at what's called liquidity, which is like the total amount of money that can move in and out, Bitcoin's kind of one versus all of the forks. And there have been many forks of Bitcoin, many places where they copy the code and they change things. So, you know, you've got like Litecoin, you've got um, Bitcoin Cash, and then you've even got forks of Bitcoin Cash, like Bitcoin SV, you know, et cetera. Um, but at, at the end of the day, it looks like Bitcoin, if, if, you, if you believe that you have to solve a hair on fire problem in order to produce and capture value. The question is like, who is using which crypto on the dark net? The only place where crypto really has an advantage, it's primarily Bitcoin and growing. And so for that reason, I think it's worth paying attention to the head of the long tail, which today is Bitcoin. Right, thank you, Cedric, for that. So would you say then, uh, oh no, not would you say. The, the question I have then is that for, for those that don't know anything about this or have thought about it or, or wanted to venture into it, uh, Bitcoin can be traded in any 
dollar amount, right? Because you can buy little tiny increments of it, right? It's it almost like you yeah. could own like 0.00001% of a Bitcoin. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. So um, without getting too mathy, you can have a Bitcoin penny and you can have a penny of a penny, right? So, um, you know, when you talk about dollars, you've got like a dollar and then you've got 10 cents and then you've got a penny. Well, you know, going to a penny is two decimal places. Um, and so Bitcoin lets you go eight decimal places. And so you, you can basically own $1 of Bitcoin. Um, and you know what, just to, to kind of go back to our last conversation, looking at Bitcoin versus the forks of Bitcoin, you know, I, I think that without getting too fancy pants into, you know, the game theory, et cetera, I think that um, it's very likely that governments are proactively hoarding not just Bitcoin, but whatever is being used on the darknet. And so it wouldn't surprise me if there are governments that have basically an index of cryptos that just map to what's being used on the darknet. And so, you know, like I said earlier, there are only five coins uh, there. But um, coming back to your question, yeah, you, you can buy a dollar of really any crypto, um, a dollar of Bitcoin. You can buy 10 cents of Bitcoin. Um, I think that people just really understand normal money with dollars and cents. And so this idea that you don't have to spend eight, $9,000 on a Bitcoin, you can buy a dollar of Bitcoin. This is kind of a hard idea for people to wrap their heads around. Right. And I use, um, so I have some, I have some crypto, I have some Bitcoin and I have some Bitcoin cash and I bought the Bitcoin cash because my thinking was, oh, this is just a piece of Bitcoin. But now that I know that I'm like, hmm, do I want to own, own Bitcoin cash? I don't know. So I use something like Coinbase is what I use to have traded. I've also had the ability to offer a service on, you know, through my website where people can actually go and trade cryptocurrencies. And, and I think it's important for people to know that they can own fractions of or smaller, smaller pieces. But again, it's like, is it ever going to be used outside of the dark net? So I'm going to ask you to put on your futures hat here. Because one of the questions I get a lot from clients is like, how does this relate to gold? Because gold is still, you know, if you listen to guys like Mike Mahoney, uh, you know, people that have been gold bugs for a long, long time or believe the value of gold, that is still the standard of everything. And ultimately, if somebody wants value out of Bitcoin, they typically sell it for dollars, right? Like they eventually in order to sell or in order to have access to really the value of Bitcoin in the modern world, not the dark net, you need real currency at some point. So they need to trade it for dollars. Yeah, um, I would I would encourage you to not consider retail or professional investors, which I know sounds really weird. I would actually say that retail doesn't matter. Um, and there are two reasons. One, there are no advantages to buying anything in retail with crypto. There's none. Like you, buying a coffee with crypto makes no sense. It's probably never going to happen in a meaningful way. Um, like who needs crypto? And who can actually use it? Because it's really hard to use. Well, if you, if you think about it, like governments have many very complicated weapon systems. They have very complicated security systems. And they can afford to have large teams that help them secure those complicated systems. Everyday people, I mean, the idea of managing your crypto is really way outside the scope of what a normal person can do. So crypto has what are called private keys. And if you don't control these private keys, 
your money is very likely, I would say guaranteed to be taken on a long enough time horizon. So if you use Coinbase and you leave your money on Coinbase, I mean, you're just one bank account haircut from having your money seized by well-intentioned regulators or bad-intentioned hackers. And so a lot of people don't know this, and the reality is that controlling your keys is just way outside the scope of what most people will ever be willing or able to do. But governments, they do this kind of stuff all the time. I mean, you talk about like keys at the extreme, you know, nuclear launch keys. Governments control nuclear launch keys and they do a pretty good job of it. But unfortunately, that's the reality of controlling these crypto keys. It's, it's at that level. So crypto gives you immense power, but it also comes with immense responsibility. So, you know, if you are going to use a Coinbase, by all means, but be aware that on a long enough time horizon, as currencies fail, which they always have historically, and governments go in to reallocate resources, which, by the way, is the definition of a government. It reallocates resources via a monopoly on violence. No, no, not throwing any shade against governments. That's just the definition of a government. If your money is on a Coinbase or any other centralized exchange, meaning you don't control those keys, your money's very likely going to get taken. It may not happen in a year. It may not happen in 10 years, but it's going to happen eventually. And if it doesn't happen with well-intentioned regulators, it will happen with bad-intentioned hackers. I mean, there, there are an endless number of exchanges that you've never heard of because they got hacked to death. They just, all their money got taken. You know, the most notable example is Mt. Gox. It was the first really big popular exchange and they just got hacked to death. Um, and there are countless examples historically. I mean, the most recent one being Cyprus where governments reach in and give everybody bank account haircuts. And so, you know, this is the thing about crypto is that unless you're willing to hold those keys, which is hard, you probably shouldn't really play in crypto unless you're willing to accept that your money will likely get taken by a regulator or a hacker at some point, which is weird to say. And so really like, who's gonna win in crypto? It's gonna be governments. And if you don't wanna have to think about the stuff, just be in the government that is most likely to adopt crypto in a big way first. Um, and we can get into the math behind how to figure that out. But if, you know, otherwise, like you just have to recognize that your government is probably going to take a, a non-trivial amount of your crypto uh, on a long enough time horizon. And if they don't, hackers probably will, which is like really, it's weird to say that as a, as a person who advocates this stuff, who studies this stuff, but that's just the reality is it's too hard to use this stuff. Right. And, and we saw that with gold. I mean, the U.S. basically confiscated gold back in the uh, the 30s, mid 30s, I believe it was. They just said, hey, if you have over $100 worth of gold, you got to turn it in and here's the price we're paying you, period. And that like it was a criminal offense to have gold at that point. And so you're not talking about something that is outside the realm of possibility in terms of the government saying, hey, we, we're taking your crypto. And, I, and I've kind of talked about this too with retirement accounts. Like, we have no control. I know I'm getting off to topic here a little bit, but you know, in Canada, we have RSPs. In the US, they have 401ks. The government sets the rules on those. And they, you know, they get tax dollars when you pull your money out of those because they gave you a tax break. Well, if they need their money, what's to stop them from saying, hey, you know what? You've got to take 50% out of your 401k or your RSP right now because we need our tax dollars. So ante up. Your money's coming out. Here's the tax bill. End of story. Like the control is over there. Uh, and I, I didn't know that about cryptos with, uh, I knew that you needed a key. So what you're saying is that unless I'm willing to have 
you know, my own key set up with a huge passcode on it where I control it. I know where it is all the time. I can access it and nobody else can get it. I am just, you know, at any point in time, I could just wake up and my crypto could be gone. That's right. But it gets really weird. And feel free to tell me to stop if this gets too weird. <laughs> so this is, I think, how universal basic income starts. Hear me out. Hear me out. Let's take two minutes. Oh, I love it. It's great. It's really hard to manage your keys. It's scary. I mean, there are huge consequences because you can't reverse a mess up. With normal money, fiat money, you mess up. Oh, I accidentally you know, gave my money to a scammer. Oh, they'll just roll it right back. It may take a little while. It might be a little frustrating, but it's reversible. Crypto, not reversible. There are so many people who have lost their keys, who threw away their keys by accident, who just forgot how to log in to get their keys. And so there is a, a pretty obvious opportunity for a technology company to make this easy. And there are lots who are trying, but it's really, really hard and no one's figured it out today. And so on one end of the spectrum, you have this opportunity to make key management easy in a way where, you know, whether it's a Google or an Apple where they don't control the keys, but they've made it usable for everyday humans. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there are these new crypto projects coming out that are doing what are called airdrops, basically free money, if you understand how to use your keys. And there's some kind of connection here where a very small number of these cryptos will actually solve a real problem and they'll capture real value. But the people who have the ability to get them don't understand anything about these keys. And so they're not able to get this free money that's basically on the table. And someone will bridge these gaps. And so you can think of this as a very early form of universal basic income where basically anybody can have these keys and this free money is being dropped to the people who have the keys and whoever can help these people actually like understand that they've got free money. And it, it may be small at first, but if these projects actually grow in value, they can grow really bizarrely. You know, like imagine that you bought Bitcoin when the first marketplace went up and you knew how to control these keys. Well, even $1 invested would be worth potentially north of a million dollars today. Just, just let that sink in for a second. The, the bizarreness of the value capture potential, is, it's so, so large, but you have, to, you have to manage these keys. And so I think what we're really seeing is a very early stage of universal basic income. So, um, you know, there was a project recently called uh, Handshake where they distributed a bunch of um, free money to people who work on open source projects. But most of these people don't know how to claim them and they're experts, they're computer savvy. So what does that tell you about the rest of us? So I think that what's gonna happen is over time, technology companies will get better at helping you manage your keys, but in doing so, it's very likely that they will replace the normal role of government. Um, which is super weird, and maybe that's taking us too far away from where you want to go talking about you know, normal, accessible investments, but it's the thing that I'm obsessed with is thinking about what's happening around the corner, what's going to force those changes? Uh, <laughs> that's like, yeah. So really, the idea here is uh, invest in the companies that come up with these ideas that get adopted because that's, you know, that's the easier thing to do in the real world. Because what I'm, what I'm hearing is, and I, and I agree with you, I've been in the personal finance industry for, for two decades. You know, people don't open their statements 
Like, like, and we're asking them to, to manage a 21 digit or whatever key in order to keep their money safe. It's just not going to happen. Like there's no password reset. There's no like, Hey, I forgot. Can I get a password reset right now? Uh, that's yeah. not happening. Right. So, yeah. so what's, what's the move, right? So I, you know, if, if I think about my parents, what can my parents do? Well, I think that for my parents, having cash is probably a good thing in the short to medium term. I encourage my parents to buy a very modest amount of crypto. And, you know, I think that Coinbase is probably fine for them as long as they recognize that they might get a crypto haircut at some point via a regulator or a hacker. And, you know, that's just the reality for them is the, the men with guns and the men with malware, they're the people who are in charge these days. And as long as they accept that, they'll be fine. And then hopefully if uh, people listening to this either have a child that is tech savvy or they themselves are willing to roll up their sleeves and become tech savvy, key management is kind of like the most valuable thing you can understand, like in the world. Because if you understand this, you might be the new rich. I mean, that might be the one deciding factor between the people who are okay today and the people who are hyper successful in the future is just being able to understand how to manage your private keys, which is a silly thing to say today, but will probably be super obvious in the future. Yeah. So, you know, this is the Bloom Living Podcast, Cedric, and what we typically do is we talk to people about their greatness and how they became great at what they do and what they overcame and, you know, their journey to where they are today. You and I have spent all of our time talking about the current environment in the world. And I thank you because you've really shed some light on some stuff for me that I can, I can take away and, uh, and, you know, think about and start to nurture some plans of action or some, some conversations I can have with people. I am curious though, how did you get started? Like, you know, to read that you're somebody that invested in Bitcoin at three bucks and at Ethereum at 35 cents. What was the, the point for you where you were like, oh, like what were you doing in your life that had you see this as an opportunity and something you wanted to get involved in? I had smart friends. That was it. And to, to their credit, you know, um, my friend Bennett Hoffman, he and I were at Microsoft very unhappy looking to get out. You know, we were lucky that we did an experiment that let us kind of escape from those golden handcuffs. And, you know, I, I think it was in 2000, late 2009, before Bitcoin even had any value, it was just an idea on a piece of paper, you know, is the white paper. Uh, he was really into applied cryptography, you know, keeping secrets with math. And he read this paper and he's like, Cedric, we got to pay attention to this. And for a week, he explained every part of it to me. And at the end of that week, you know what I told him? I said, this is dumb. Nobody's ever going to use this stupid internet money. And I was wrong. And to his credit, you know, he just poked me every single month for like a year until I think it was late 2010, early 2011. He's like, Cedric. People are buying drugs with it on the dark net. And I was like, what? That's dumb. They're going to get arrested. And it got me to start looking. And, you know, it was because my grandparents were Holocaust survivors that I was very sensitive to this idea of wealth preservation through black swan events. You know, the Holocaust was a black swan event. I mean, it doesn't happen every day, but on a long enough time horizon, genocide, genocides are guaranteed to happen. I mean, we don't talk about it, but genocides are happening today. We just don't hear about it very often. And so, 
you know, my whole life I've been raised with stories from my grandparents, you know, Cedric, at any moment, your house could be taken, your bank account could be seized, you know, everything that you own could be taken from you. So be on the lookout for any way to safeguard your wealth. And so that moment when I realized, oh my gosh, people, groups, and other governments can now use this magical internet money to do things that other people, groups, and governments may not like, whoa, I should pay attention. That was 10 years ago. And so I was just very lucky to have a smart friend who saw how important this was. And then I was in the right place at the right time a few times. So, you know, I started helping um, other tech founders at first buy Bitcoin because it was really hard. And then that turned into getting introduced to angel investors to help them buy Bitcoin. And before I knew it, I was helping venture capitalists buy Bitcoin. And then one of them was just like, hey, Cedric, you know, why don't I just give you and Bennett money and you guys can help people do this at scale? And that's how, you know, Buttercoin, our, our early Bitcoin exchange got started. And, uh, you know, I got to basically go on this $2.5 million education in how normal money and internet money worked. And I just went way, way down the rabbit hole. And it's just been an obsession since that happened. And so, you know, I'm still, I know you call me an expert, which I appreciate, but I'm, I'm truly not an expert. There's, these things are so wide. You know, like, first of all, normal money, it, the more you learn about it, the more you're like, oh my gosh, this is so severely broken. I mean, the easiest indicator that money's broken is look at the number of people who are in irreversible debt. It's enormous and growing. And then you look at internet money, you're like, wow, this thing solves so many problems, but it's so few people can use it, right? It's so unusable today. And so you realize that the, the more that you can understand normal money and the more that you can understand this new internet money, the better off you are. And so I'm just obsessed with that is understanding this transition, which seems like it's pretty obvious to me that it's happening from totally broken normal money to currently unusable internet money. Right. Well, hey, Cedric, first of all, uh, I just want to honor you and your family for uh, what they went through. Uh, you know, I'm... Uh, I just don't know where to, I don't, I guess I don't know where to take this now because I'm overwhelmed by the knowledge you've shared and, and what comes up for me. So if I take this back to the, you know, the podcast, what we usually talk about is I, what I see from you is somebody who is uh, having success in an area of life because you're willing to dig in and you might call it an obsession. Sure. However, you're willing to dig in and do the work necessary to understand something and challenge yourself and and you were willing to listen to somebody outside of you who was poking you along but once that got triggered it seems like there was a real willingness to to just dive in and see what can i do with what i'm uncovering and and i love that you're now sharing it with the world like it's it's one thing to know this stuff and to keep it to ourselves, right? But to actually be somebody out there who's an advocate and understanding and wanting to share that information, I, I just honor and respect you for that. That's that's beautiful. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say thank you because I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> Which this is the first time in four years, Cedric. I have actually got to a point where I'm like my mind has been completely expanded beyond my ability to, to continue asking questions. And so I want to come back to this at some point with you. If you're, you know, if you'd be so willing down the road to come on the show, I would love to have you again. And, uh, and you know, is there anything that you think I haven't really touched on that you would want to say to people or have we, have we launched into enough, uh, enough information for one day? <laughs> 
Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation to come back and keep going. Absolutely, I'd love to. Um, also, I, I commiserate with this feeling of your mind exploding because crypto is so wide. I mean, I've been looking at this stuff for 10 years and I still have so much to learn. I feel every day like you feel, which is that I'll, I'll discover something new, I'll get some new information and it will expand my mind to the point that I just need to take a minute. And that kind of brings me to your, your last question, which is, is there anything else that you know, I'd like to leave with people? Yes, be nice to yourself. So we live in a weird world and this is a very interesting time, uh, lots of changes. And no matter what's happening, I would just encourage everyone to be nice to themselves. Because I think that in the world that we're living in, the best thing that you can do is just do a quick experiment and you're gonna fail with most of them. And when you do, to be nice to yourself through the failures because you're gonna have to throw a lot of spaghetti against the wall before something sticks. And I think the number one thing that can keep us throwing spaghetti, that can keep us in the game, is just being nice to ourselves. So um, be nice to yourselves and each other. Oh, that's, that's great advice. And, uh, you know, I was previously, my previous career was a musician and, and I love what you said because it took a lot of work to get to a good song. And there was a lot of failed attempts at writing something. And there was a lot, sure. There was these moments where stuff just clicked and you were like, wow, this is magic. And there were other things, you know, other moments or other what I would call songs that satisfied me, where it took a lot of work to pull it out from ourselves as musicians and to create something. So that's, uh, that's beautiful advice. Thank you. Uh, we've been speaking with Cedric Dahl on uh, all things life-related, <laughs> not just cryptocurrency. And thank you so much, Cedric, for being on the show. It's been a great uh, privilege to have you on, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And um, if there's anything I've said that people would like to politely disagree with, I encourage it. You can find me on Twitter at Cedric Makes. Yeah, is that the? Thank you for that. Is that the best place to get a hold of you? Is uh, is you know how can we how can we empower people to ask questions or or find research that you've done or anything like that? That's a great place. And I apologize that I I forgot about that. Oh, it's all good. It's all good. So uh, I have a research group called the Thousand X Group. So we have a subscription service. Uh, if you go to 1000x.report, uh, we kind of give away the thesis for free. We're like, here's what we believe. Here's what we measure, how we measure it. You can do that yourself. Or if you like to save your time and energy and money and instead just like have other people do that work to pursue the thesis, that's what we do at 1000x.report, a monthly subscription service. And then I invite everyone to politely disagree with me on Twitter. Or if you're just curious about my latest thoughts, uh, at Cedric Makes on Twitter. Great. Cedric Dahl, thank you so much. Have an amazing day. Thank you so much for having me. All right. See ya. Beautiful. A huge thanks to today's guest and to you for being a part of the show. Now, if any of the ideas or stories did strike a chord with you, then I'd be honored if you would just take a quick moment to do a couple of things. One, if something in particular did resonate with you and you feel like it would make a difference in the lives of others, then please go ahead and share this through your social media channels. We'd like that very much. And two, if you are feeling compelled to join in on our ever-growing Bloom Living conversation, then hit the subscribe button and we'll show up every time there is a new episode available. You know, 
It's not only my goal, but it's the goal of our entire Bloom Living team and community to be the very change that we want to see in the world. All ideas begin with a conversation, first with yourself and then with others. So we welcome your voice and we ask that you send along any comments, thoughts, or questions. This is Thomas DeShooter, Bloom Living. I don't want to turn your stomach fast I don't want to get all mired and tight Sending Nothing could find me a pocket here There's bad bones thrown on my television My mailbox of bankers warning Street, a drive-by shoot.